Ian McLaughlin, and I'm a PhD student studying the brain at the University of Pennsylvania. And my name's Bo, uh, but I'm a different species of scientist. I did not study the brain, this wet, messy, goopy stuff that Ian studies. Uh, but I do find the brain interesting because for something so small and fragile, it generates everything from my ability to say these words to how much I love Shake Shack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, Ian, so when you're on Periscope talking about all these different topics that people bring up in a rapid fire kind of way, one of the topics that people ask you about all the time, maybe the most frequently, is various topics related dreams. You know, why we have them, how we have them, why we have nightmares, um, how people can have lucid dreaming. I mean, all these questions. For sure. It, it strikes me as one of those topics that's pretty interesting to just about everybody because of how mysterious and, and enthralling dreams can be, but also how totally bizarre and abnormal they are and how different our consciousness is while we're dreaming. Yeah, and from what I can tell, it seems like like many, it's one of those areas where we don't have conclusive answers yet. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And it's funny because dreams have been studied for actually a very, very long time, like well before neuroscience was even created. Like evidently Aristotle wrote about lucid dreams and he was philosophizing all the way back in like 350 BC. Wow, and what did Aristotle say? Well, the quote is, um, quote, often when one is asleep, there is something in consciousness which declares that what then presents itself is but a dream. It, meaning you can basically wake up to the fact that you're dreaming. Well, he's a pretty smart dude. <laughs> so it's pretty cool that there's such this consistent aspect to our minds uh, that, that peak the same curiosity between us now and people from 2000 years ago. Yeah, and, and people have been trying to understand dreams ever since. And while we're much closer than we've ever been to understanding it, scientists still disagree as to not only how it arises in the brain, but also what its functional role, if there is a functional role, might be. And there's actually still no consensus on a definition of dreaming. So for example, you can be super broad and say it's a type of hallucinatory activity where you're perceiving something that's just not there or perceiving sights and sounds that have no basis in reality. That seems like it would encompass it. Yeah, but, but that definition introduces some interesting questions because dreaming isn't the only time when something like that happens. So one of the biggest names in dream research, Alan Hobson, he suggests that there are clear similarities between dreaming states and psychosis like that, that that we talked about in the past episode about like schizophrenia and stuff like that. So, so in other words, since both are mental states characterized by hallucinations and, uh, or, or delusions, it follows that dreaming is about as psychotic a state as anyone who doesn't have psychosis is going to experience. And another major researcher even argues that the functional anatomy of dreaming is extremely similar to the anatomy of schizophrenic psychosis. Wow, that's pretty crazy, but um, I guess I could kind of see how that makes sense. Yeah, but not everyone is fully on board that dreaming is so easily explained. Another group uses these similarities to note some important aspects of dreams that I think a lot of people miss. Namely, it's the fact that it's involuntary and our brain is generating like totally credible simulations of the real world or, or what at least seem credible. Like no matter how bizarre the dream gets, we totally buy that it's real. Hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, that's true most of the time, but it, sometimes I feel like I recognize how totally weird things are while I'm still dreaming. Well, that's actually one of the first steps in lucid dreaming. It, it's like an invasion of incredulity. And this correlates to some really interesting patterns of brain activity that's totally unique to lucid dreaming and doesn't appear to occur without lucid dreaming. But before we get into lucid dreaming, I think it's important to note that a lot of understanding dreaming comes 
down to, to just like putting words to things that we all can recognize. So for example, until I read that dreams are composed of a single-minded type of consciousness, I never really thought about it that way. But when I read that, I recognized that it's very true. And what do you mean by single-minded? Right, so this was a concept that came out of the late 70s, and it describes the fact that our dream consciousness tends to be unaccompanied by other simultaneous streams of thought and imagery. It has four manifestations. The first is an absence of reflective awareness that one is dreaming while you're dreaming, right? You don't know that you're dreaming. The second is absence of alternative images and thoughts while attending to primary dream content. In other words, you're just focused on what's happening in the moment. The third is a tendency for dreams to stay on a single thematic track, right? It can get super wacky, but just one plot at a time. And the fourth is an absence of a set to remember the dream while it's in progress. Interesting. Okay, so let's take this step by step then. Let's start with what we do know. Right, I don't want to make it seem like we know very little about sleeping and dreaming. What we do know is remarkable. And the new techniques we can use in neuroscience are helping us to get much closer to understanding what's going on. But as better and better experiments are conducted, some hypotheses seem way more plausible than others. In particular, dreaming is something that philosophers and scientists have tried to understand like through deduction, like, like applying logic to the brain. And there are some problematic assumptions that can lead you to inaccurate conclusions. Like, for example, a lot of the theories of dreaming are based on the brain being like a rational, organized, and purposeful organ. Right? It's definitely true that the brain is amazing in its complexity and adaptability, but not everything it does is necessarily straightforward or rational. But I think if someone believes the brain is the epitome of nature, then if the brain is capable of doing something, then there's got to be a really good and specific reason it's doing it. It'll make the idea that dreams are just a byproduct of spontaneous neuronal activity that has like little to do with dreams themselves, but rather just like housekeeping and neurons rehearsing for waking life activity, it'll make that idea seem totally outrageous. So is that the theory of why we dream? That it's just random activity in the brain that causes dreams? Sort of, yeah. It's, it's one theory. Um, and it's not quite random, right? But the point is that the dream isn't the main character in what's going on. It's more like a side character that has little to do with the plot and, and wouldn't exist without the other more important characters driving the plot forward. Okay, so let's back up. What are the main theories of dreaming? Well, there are two broad types of theories of dreams. There are ones that focus on the mechanistic underpinnings of dreams and ones that focus on the function of dreaming. In other words, some theories focus on how exactly dreaming arises from the brain, while other theories focus on what dreaming can do for us. Historically, most theories focus on the function, which is like a pretty human thing to do if you think about it, right? To focus on how a wrench can be used rather than how it's made. Yeah, I can understand that. I think most theories I've heard of focus mostly on function, like, one that dreaming helps you to take out the garbage in your brain. Yeah, that's actually like a formal theory. And the more formal term is reverse learning theory, which suggests that we dream to eliminate undesirable connections and associations that build up throughout the day. Okay, and what do you think of that theory? I think that the way most people understand this is wrong. So Ian, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> it's not you that's wrong. It's that I think the way the theory is understood is wrong. Okay, Ian, tell me why my understanding is wrong. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, I think most people see this theory as getting rid of unpleasant or negative psychological aspects of our awareness. And that's just not how evolution nor the brain work. It's not like we can evolve to do something because it'd be nice if we could do it. And, and while it would be quite nice if we had like an automatic psychological housekeeper to come in and tidy up, 
There's just no reason to suspect that such a system would either come to be sculpted by evolution, nor that it'd even be advantageous. Okay, so what's the correct understanding of the garbage collector <laughs> theory then? It's really focused on eliminating synaptic connectivity that isn't sufficiently active. You can think of it this way. So for many synaptic connections in the brain, their existence is predicated upon them being active. So if they aren't active, then they'll just like shrivel up and eventually go away. Okay, so you're saying that it's not just psychological. Right, exactly. Okay, now what are some of the other theories? Well, we can start with someone that I think most people who'd listen to our conversations would probably know. Freud. Yep, I've heard of him. <laughs> yeah, so, so he thought that we dream to fulfill wishes that we otherwise can't fulfill without actually experiencing them. Sounds really good, but also sounds like something you would not believe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so while lucid dreaming may leave the door open to your ability to quench certain desires, it's certainly not the reason we sleep and definitely not the reason that we dream. Okay, any others? Yeah, there's a bunch. So for example, there's threat uh, simulation, where our brains simulate threats so we can rehearse dealing with them in a safe space, right? There's problem solving, where people suggest that dreams are like a venue that enables us to solve problems with fewer limitations fettering us. And so this is inspired by the fact that some people can solve problems better after sleeping on them. Another is that dreams enable us to cope with painful emotions in a safe condition. So uh, if someone was like recently traumatized, Dreams might give them the ability to become less sensitive to the emotional processes underlying the trauma. There's even an idea called oniric Darwinism, suggesting that dreaming enables our brain to generate new ideas by like pseudo-random variation to produce something kind of like thought mutations, right? We can generate new ideas that it'd be difficult to generate while awake because we're, we're less fettered by the focus that waking awareness demands. Ooh, I really like that one. It's kind of like... Uh... Thought mutations paralleling genetic mutations. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the whole idea. Exactly. It's Darwinism. And so, and then when you wake up, you have these new ideas that sort of randomly sprouted up now that your brain can choose from that wouldn't have cropped up while you were awake. Kind of like a, a sleeping brainstorming session. It's like, if your ideas were regular people, but my ideas were X-Men. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we agree on that one. Okay, so it sounded like all of those ideas were pretty much functional, like he said. Exactly, I agree. So which are the theories that are more comprehensive, that explain some function and some mechanism? Well, the highest quality research and, and most thorough explanation of dreams arise from very fundamental discoveries of what the brain's doing while we're sleeping. So, for example, REM sleep, right, which stands for uh, one of the phases of sleep when we show rapid eye movement, REM. Uh, it was only discovered in 1953, so there are a bunch of theories that emerged quite a bit before we even knew that the brain was doing something special during a certain phase of sleep. Well, I know that we're talking about dreams in particular, but maybe we could clarify the stages of sleep really quickly too? Yeah, good idea. So, so as you're falling asleep, your brain is in the process of transforming its act activity. In fact, you can even start dreaming before electrical recordings of brain activation patterns show that you're even asleep. So you mean that we start dreaming before we're actually asleep? It appears to be the case sometimes. So one group compares sleep dreaming to daydreaming and finds very similar patterns of activity in the brain. It's just that these patterns are stronger while we're sleeping. So in other words, for some people, as they're falling asleep, the onset of dreaming can occur before they're technically completely asleep. Anyways, after falling asleep, right, we progress through several phases of sleep where there are different broad patterns of activity in the brain. So generally speaking, our brain is slowing down 
all throughout its entire circuitry, and everything is way more synchronized and rhythmic. Then, however, activity changes very significantly, and that's when we enter REM sleep, or REM sleep. So I imagine there's more to REM sleep than just our eyes moving back and forth? <laughs> yeah, so from a general perspective, the brain looks very much like it's actually awake. There's a lot of chaotic activity, rather than the slow rhythmic patterns it was exhibiting before. This isn't to say that the exact same activity is occurring during REM sleep that occurs while we're awake. There are some important differences in the specific circuit activity that translates to very important differences regarding which signals get transferred. And this is what seems to underlie the most vivid and intense dreams. So we can dream all throughout the night, and even just before we fall asleep but the strongest dreams occur during REM sleep. Yeah, the field is pretty definitive on that. And so what are the differences between waking consciousness and dreaming consciousness at the circuit level? Well, that's the billion dollar question, right? Because once we understand that, we'll likely be able to understand the architecture of dreaming. So one of the things we need to keep in mind is that we have different types of consciousness or different amounts of consciousness at different times. While we're awake, we have the highest levels of it, but there are even different amounts of consciousness while we're awake. Like you're not 100% aware of your surroundings and internal states and state of mind at all times when you're awake, right? But you definitely have more consciousness while awake than while dreaming. But that's not to say that we have none of it while dreaming. We do, it's just restricted. Specifically, we tend to be much less capable of thinking about what we're thinking about. Thinking about what we're thinking about. <laughs> yeah, so scientists call that metacognition. You're, you're being cognitive about being cognitive. A lot of philosophers spend a lot of time doing this, right? So like if you ever stop to think about why you just had a thought, like did, did I just have a disgust response to seeing a Rob Schneider movie because when I was younger, I had a girl slap me in the face while we were watching a Rob Schneider movie? That's like an episode of metacognition. I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about. Did that happen to you? <laughs> I don't know, I guess I have to think about it, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So we have different levels of consciousness while we're awake and dreaming. Does it all come down to the ability of metacognition? Yeah, that's a very important part of it, right? But dream researchers are even more organized. They break consciousness down into primary and secondary consciousness. And this is where my reading on this topic brought me through like the cosmos of the evolution of the brain. <laughs> it's perfect for a conversation about dreams. Okay, so how does it deliver such big thoughts? <laughs> well, dream research breaks consciousness into primary and secondary, right? Primary consciousness includes things like awareness of perception and emotion. So all mammals have this level of consciousness. It's sort of what the simpler, evolutionarily older parts of the brain encode. Sensory information and moment-to-moment -moment awareness. Secondary consciousness, though, is much deeper, and it's arguably what distinguishes human consciousness from everything else in the universe, right? It requires language, self-reflection, abstract thinking, uh, a volition, and, and metacognition. Well, when we're awake, we're alert with the full panoply of secondary consciousness at our disposal. But when we're falling asleep, we have dramatically diminished awareness. Perhaps like a suspension of both for a short period of time. And then, when we're dreaming, we're running on internally generated perceptions. They're extremely rich, like, like shockingly rich, but it's totally deficient in the ability to recognize its own condition and suffers from very poor memory. So, as a result, it gets totally incoherent and bizarre, right? And we just go along with it and we just don't question it. And this occurs because there's an increase and decrease in a variety of circuits during dreaming, which, while richest in REM sleep, can occur in the stages before as well, 
uh, that results in difference in the way information from the senses is created, as well as the way we interpret that activity. Okay, so when I see super drunk people, they are running on primary consciousness. <laughs> That's actually a great observation. So, so yes, quite likely there's a corollary in that altered state. You have reduced communication between circuits involved in primary and secondary consciousness because alcohol is inhibiting the communication between the two. And you said that all mammals have primary consciousness. So do they also have dreams? Interesting topic. So it turns out that RAM sleep is kind of recent, evolutionarily speaking. So at the risk of being like overly reductionist, a very important regulator of REM sleep are clusters of neurons in a brainstem structure called the pons. So if you're looking at a picture of a human brain, it's like the tiny little belly on the brainstem. This area is extremely ancient evolutionarily, right? So REM sleep is like a great example of an old brain structure acquiring new properties and function. And because it's so evolutionarily ancient, REM activity during sleep appears in both mammals and birds, right? We all share that circuitry in common, but then humans layered new elements of consciousness on top of that evolutionarily older uh, aspect of consciousness. Okay, so if REM sleep does occur in other mammals, would that imply that they are definitely dreaming? Well, since they don't have the machinery for secondary consciousness, their dreams likely don't even mimic things like language or, or future planning or like ambition. Instead, they likely occur, but just stay pretty simple, right? Like, like emotional experiences or, or dreamed responses to emotional states like fear or trying to catch prey. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that maybe dogs at least would have dreams. You know, I've seen YouTube videos of, uh, <laughs> of dogs kind of shaking their paws, kind of like they're running, maybe chasing mm -hmm. after a frisbee or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the dogs aren't necessarily dreaming that like they want to be like Olympic sprinters one day, right? And dreaming about all the obstacles that uh, they're going to have to overcome and how great it's going to feel to prove their skeptics wrong, right? Maybe they're just like chasing a rabbit in their dreams, right? Right. Cool. So you say that REM sleep is evolutionarily recent. So do we know why REM sleep occurs? Right. So, so REM or REM sleep appears in both mammals and in birds. Um, and an important aspect of REM sleep is that it changes throughout development. So there's more REM sleep earlier in developmental stages. REM what? sleep is evolutionarily recent. Yeah. But it's due to the pons, which is an evolutionary really old thing. Right. So yeah, right, right. the pons so is just developed a new capability? Or? That's exactly right. Yeah, so that's something that happens in the brain is that older structures can be integrated into the activities of newer structures. And so, like as we were saying, right, it's, it's an example of an older structure gaining new function because now it has available to it new circuitry, right? Okay. So now it can do something new because it has a uh, forebrain. It has, so it's like a new tool. Yeah, basically. exactly. It has like a new Megatron super suit built up around it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, like the human forebrain is, is just like that. Yeah. Just like that. <laughs> in humans, REM sleep peaks in the third trimester of gestation, believe it or not, and then it plummets after birth while waking time and cognitive capabilities come online. So this correlates with a reduction in an emphasis on primary consciousness while secondary consciousness starts growing with the development of specific circuitry, right? And a capacity for longer waking periods. Oh, that's wild. So REM sleep is occurring in the womb also? Right. Now, that of course doesn't mean that there are experiences akin to those that we, as adults, or even prepubescent kids, experience. 
Rather, that similar patterns of activity that we see during REM sleep are also exhibited in this third trimester stage. So in fact, dreams as we know them don't seem to really occur before the age of five and may appear as late as uh, age eight. So this begs the question of whether or not REM sleep may play a role in helping to orchestrate the development of the central nervous system. Well, kids definitely have nightmares before age five and come screaming to their parents' room. So their dreams are not what we think of as dreaming? Yeah, so, so the research suggests that they're just qualitatively different kinds of dreams. Maybe they're way more primary consciousness oriented, right? Where it's just moods, emotions, things like fear, anxiety, um, and less, you know, like uh, a vivid picture of you floating through a nebula, right? Or giving a performance in front of a stadium full of people, right? So, so the, the character, the quality of the dream is less vivid and less complicated, but there's still REM sleep occurring. So they still have those perceptual experiences, right? But their brain is still developing to the point where they're going to be able to integrate it into a bigger picture, more complicated picture. Ah, okay. So the brain activity during REM sleep may help the brain to develop, right? Exactly. It may actually be critical for proper brain development. Like not just like a nice thing that the brain does, but like central to brain development. So is that important? Yeah, so the location of a neuron and the neurotransmitters it creates are controlled genetically. So your genome has the instructions necessary for a neuron to get where it needs to go in the brain as it's growing and for it to be able to synthesize the right neurotransmitters like GABA, glutamate, dopamine, serotonin. But a neuron's ability to communicate with the right other neurons relies on activity and interactions between them. So whether a neuron synthesizes dopamine or glutamate, or both, is genetically controlled. But without any activity, it won't be correctly networked into the circuitry of the brain. So neurons can't be loners. They have to work as part of a team. That's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, there's use-dependent fine-tuning of connectivity in the brain. And the visual system is a great example of this. So without being used, it just doesn't develop correctly. So if blind people who are born blind somehow regain some hardware you know, like brain hardware, uh-huh. that, circuitry. Uh, circuitry that enables them to see, they would still have to, well, first of all, learn what they're seeing. But mm-hmm. second of all, their brain would literally have to retrain itself as if it were a newborn to synthesize that information. That is definitely true. So, yeah, I mean, if you read accounts of people who have vision restored for one reason or another, or another they definitely go through periods where they're overwhelmed by the sensory stimulus. It just makes no sense. It's overwhelming. It's, it's like blinded by light, basically. And then over time, the brain starts to make sense of what's going on. And that literally is a byproduct of new architecture being formed. And so it's the same kind of thing, use-dependent connectivity. And I've heard you say, neurons that fire together, wire together. Is that basically what you're talking about here? Yeah, so that's a quote from a guy named Donald Hebb. Uh, in 1949, actually. And, and that's the same idea. When two or more neurons are firing together, they grow to make communication between them more effective. And this makes evolutionary sense if something in the environment, some stimulus, is prompting your brain to elicit activity in several neurons that weren't previously communicating to begin communicating more, perhaps it'd be advantageous to make communication even easier and more effective so that you can better confront whatever that stimulus is. So if we have REM sleep while gestating in the third trimester, are we just constantly in REM sleep? Great point. So actually we're not. We alternate between REM-like states and periods of brain deactivation. So in other words, we alternate between the activity patterns that resemble those that we exhibit, like adults, 
while in REM sleep, and patterns of just global silence. And those periods of global deactivation, they're hypothesized to be a preparatory state for what eventually becomes waking. So while gestating, the brain alternates between a state of REM to help prepare uh, the brain to properly develop and a period of radio silence. And that period of radio silence when we're born is the slot into which waking consciousness is then placed. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, if REM sleep is playing such an important role to orchestrate connectivity in the brain, why does it continue to do that while we're adults? That's a great question. So an intuitive answer is why would it have to stop? Well, because the brain is done developing. Right, but, but it's not like there's a rule that requires that everything that occurs while we're children must cease when we become adults. Well, a lot of things do, right? Like hormone release during puberty. Yeah, it's a totally respectable assumption, right? And the fact is that amounts of RAM sleep do indeed decline as we age. But there's no like evolutionarily selective pressure for us to eliminate REM sleep. In other words, it's not like you'd be more attractive to a mate, right? Or be able to like get nutrients more effectively. And there's even some evidence to suggest that it may continue to play a role in maintaining important connectivity in the brain. Ah, okay. So again, if neurons that fire together, wire together, like a little chant, <laughs> having that activity during REM sleep having that occur can help to keep the connections that are important. Yeah, well put. So that's a central argument to a lot of theories for why we continue to have REM sleep, to maintain connectivity. But even beyond the connectivity issue, other things take place while we're in REM sleep. And studies that deprive animals of REM sleep, like selectively, suggest that everything from memory and cognition to emotion are influenced by REM sleep. So if you're capable of REM sleep before you're capable of dreaming, and dreaming shows up in humans around year five, then what's going on in a one-year-old's brain? What are they experiencing? Yeah, so the theory is that the brain is preparing to integrate a bunch of different types of signals, basically integrating elements of primary and secondary consciousness. And so the development of consciousness itself is a gradual and time-consuming process, and dreams may become a byproduct of all of these systems coming online. In other words, our dreams may represent the outcome of a virtual reality generator, that all of these systems need to be able to effectively integrate with one another. So it's not the dream that's necessarily important, it's the activity underlying the dream that's important, but it's impossible to decouple the experiences one has from that important activity. So they're one and the same. A virtual reality generator. Sounds like the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen researchers refer to like a proto-self that appears during dreams, during REM sleep, early in development. And this is the system that generates and becomes responsible for pretty automatic behaviors. So these are things like motor balance and patterns of muscle activation that underlie things like crawling or walking. You could even describe the primary consciousness as the early proto-self that needs to grow up first before a secondary consciousness can be layered on top of it. And remember, this consciousness is all about emotion and the senses and not so much about reason or planning. And REM sleep may be the exact pattern of activation that's necessary to allow this early proto-self to grow up. And then, as a development of higher level structures occurs, the, the secondary consciousness comes on board. And so to me, for, from my perspective, this model is very powerful because it's not only based on mechanisms, but it also explains function. And there are just a few assumptions based on a lack of mechanism involved. Also, I like it because it reflects evolutionary development. The development of frontal lobe structures and executive control is much newer, evolutionarily speaking, 
and its emergence was dependent upon humans living longer lives than previous mammals. It just wasn't a component of the early neurophysiological architecture that REM sleep, and thus dreaming, initially evolved to produce. But there wasn't any selective pressure to get rid of this architecture that produces dreams. And so, and it might even have some auxiliary benefits, right? But it just kind of sticks around as something sort of like a vestigial state of consciousness that comes along with the package of all the physiological processes that occur while we sleep. And so next time, we can talk about the particular circuits in the brain that are involved in dreaming, what dreaming can teach us about being psychotic, um, why it is that people sleepwalk, as well as lucid dreaming, right? Everybody wants to know about lucid dreaming. Uh, or, or in other words, the ability to know that you're dreaming and to consciously alter the course of the dream and how it's possible to learn how to lucid dream. And maybe you can answer another question. Okay. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, next time. <laughs>